right, we are in Luke chapter 12 this morning. Luke chapter 12, we'll begin in verse 13. You will find that on page 871 in the Pew Bible in front of you. And uh, we have, I think, a somewhat challenging and uh, provocative passage before us. If uh, you feel any pressure on your toes this morning, um, I trust it is the Lord's doing and not mine. So uh, you can take that up with him. Uh, He's been stomping on me for a little while as I've considered this passage, and perhaps he might do a good work in us this morning. In fact, you know, I I hope is as we consider these words, we'll we'll feast this morning. I hope it's we're about to have a feast. I don't know if you could smell it. Um, There's a a lot of good food downstairs. They were cooking that pork yesterday. And by the way, praise God, we're no longer kosher. I just I I can't wait to get into that. But we're going to have a feast for our souls this morning. So we will profit our bodies in a moment, but let's profit our souls through the Word of God this morning. Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 13. Hear now the Word of God. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man... Who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentiful. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and, and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the word of our Lord Jesus Christ this morning. And it is my prayer, it is our prayer, I trust, that we would hear his truth today, even if it is difficult to do so that we would long for Christ's truth to penetrate in our heart as opposed to longing for comfort, longing for entertainment. And so we as your people, redeemed by the blood of the risen Christ, ask you to come and do a work in our hearts through the preached word of our Lord and the power of your spirit, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. In John Grisham's best-selling novel, The Testament, he opens with the dying words of a man soon to be parted with his money. I'm an old man, he says, lonely and unloved, sick and hurting and tired of living. I am ready for the hereafter. It has to be better than this. My assets exceed $11 billion. 
I own silver in Nevada and copper in Montana and coffee in Kenya and coal in Angola, rubber in Malaysia, natural gas in Texas, and crude oil in Indonesia and steel in China. My companies own companies, and my money is the root of my misery. I have three families, three ex-wives and seven children who are all doing all they can to torment me. I am estranged from all the wives and all the children, and yet they are gathering here today because I am dying, and it's time to divide the money. It's an interesting book, I think. It teaches some powerful truths, one being that whether we're rich or poor, life will end for us if Christ does not return, and, and the dead will leave everything behind, and the living will therefore divide what's left And yet, evidently, the living are not always satisfied with how things are divided. As we see in verse 13 of Luke 12, someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. This man wants Christ's help in the division of an inheritance that his father has left him. And Jesus will use this as an opportunity to discuss the perils of money. I suggest to you this morning that money is potentially dangerous. I've entitled this message, Woe to the Rich. I did so somewhat provocatively, by the way. Not not woe to all who are rich. Certainly wealth can be a great blessing for us, but often money is hazardous to us. And what makes money even more hazardous is that we are blind often to its hazards. I mean, who got up this morning and said, you know, I, I really fear Lots of money. Which of you cannot sleep at night out of the fear you might have some rich uncle who might suddenly die and leave it all to you? We don't fear it. In fact, in America, we seem to strive after it. I've listened to the political dialogue of our day and the struggling economy in which we live in and and the great concern that for the first time ever in the history of this great nation, the next generation might not be better off than the generation that preceded it. I I hear this all the time. Perhaps you do. we got to make sure the next generation is better off, right? We're afraid that it's not going to be. I wonder, by the way, what we mean by better off. Happier? More righteous? More wise? more content? Or do we mean, as I think, more money, bigger houses and better vacations, more and better things? And Jesus comes to us even now and says, beware of wanting more. It's dangerous. It's called greed in the Bible. And Jesus gives us a warning of greed. He tells us, I believe in this passage, at least three truths about the dangers of greed, the first being greed hides. Greed hides. You see verse 13, as we've already seen, someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. I want you to remember the context in which this man approaches Jesus. Look in verse 1 of chapter 12, a passage we considered last week. In the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together, they were trampling one another, right? So thousands of people are trying to get to Jesus. So many that they're pushing each other aside, shoving each other around to get close to Him, even stepping on each other. And, and everyone's trying to get to Him him, get close to him, and one man makes it all the way to Jesus, 
right? And he, and Jesus was teaching. And what did this man hear Jesus teach? Well, look in verse 5. He says, But I warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has the authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Or look in verse 9. He says here, But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. In verse 10, he talks about an unforgivable sin. The one who blasphemes the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. In verse 11, he talks about persecution. And when they bring you before the synagogue and the rulers and the authorities, etc. And, and this man has made his way to Jesus and he raises his hand and says, Okay, a Rabbi Jesus, that's all very interesting. Hell, judgment, unforgiveness, uh, persecution, all fascinating. But I have something very important I need to talk to you about. How do I get more money? I want more money. He has potentially one chance to talk to Jesus. And he picks money. And in many ways, he sounds a lot like me and you. It's just not what's on our heart and our mind. Do we not constantly think of these things? Our money, how much we have, do we need more? What are we going to do with it? How can we buy things that we don't have? Are we not focused on stuff and possessions and savings? We, we think about it. We fantasize about it. We, we even talk to God about it, don't we? And In fact, maybe this man heard Jesus talk about money. Jesus is not afraid to talk about money, by the way. He, of the 39 parables in which he told, 11 of them are about money. And maybe this man has heard some of those teachings in, that Jesus has given on money, and he thinks, well, my brother clearly needs some help on this, right? It's like when you listen to a sermon and you think, oh, I wish so-and-so was here, right? And so this man, you know, he goes up to Jesus and says, will you give my brother one of your sermons on money? He would really benefit from that. Jesus' response is recorded in verse 14. Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. You hear the warning there in verse 15? Watch out, he says. Take care. Be on your guard against all covetousness. Maybe your translations, as most do, say, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Notice the warning that precedes that. Take care, he says. In other words, be careful. And then he adds, right, and be on your guard. Watch out. Watch out for greed. Be on your guard against greed. Be careful concerning greed. Why this warning? Why this strong warning? I, I think the assumption is when Jesus says be careful of greed, the assumption is, is that greed is deceptive. Greed, greed is hidden. Greed is like a, a spiritual cancer that not only will it kill you, it will hide from you why it does. Greed, by, by its very nature, hides from us. You notice, I, at least it, uh, to my recollection, Jesus never says, watch out for murder. Right? He never says, be on your guard against theft. Or, or watch out for adultery. Why? Is adultery not as bad as greed? Oh, I... I I would probably imagine it's probably worse. But no one commits adultery and doesn't know it. Right? Adultery is terrible. But it's not deceptive. Right? You know when you do it. But greed is different. It hides. It, it rarely reveals itself. Rarely do we think of ourselves as greedy. Of course, we all know greedy people, right? I mean, they're easy to spot. But we never see them in the mirror. 
So how do you, if it's hidden, how do you know then if you're doing it? Well, I find Jesus' passage here in verse 15 interesting when he says, Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Most translations put it, or the ESV, all covetousness. It seems like there's more than one kind of greed. I think this is how it hides, by the way. Because you may have one kind and not the other. And so it's very clearly to see other people's greed. And you think, well, I'm not like that, therefore I'm not greedy. Jesus says there's many kinds of greed. May I suggest to you that this passage and the next teach at least three. One type of greed we might call a savings sickness. It's when we have security in our money. We find money to be our safety. I think this is perhaps the point of the rich fool, the parable which he'll, well, he'll mention, we'll consider in a moment. But just look at verse 19 when he says, I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink. And be merry, right? You have plenty. Take life easy is his thought. Money is his security. He looks to money to keep him safe, right? If it's insurance, it's savings, it's retirement, it's money. Money is his security. And by the way, this is how we talk about money in America, don't we? I don't want to be rich, we say. I just want to be secure. Well, how is it that we find our security? Is it in God? Or is it in money? I think greed comes as a saving sickness. It's sickness because you're not supposed to be secure in money. That's not your security. God is to be your security. And so often we replace God with money. I think this is the point of the parable. That he is a fool because he has put his security in money. It's lying to you. Money cannot keep you safe. Money cannot keep you secure. And so often when we have lots of money, we say, I don't need God because I have money. In fact, I think this is what Jesus means in the following teaching. You note verse 24. Consider the ravens, he says. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn. And yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? You see what he's saying is these, these birds, they don't, they, don't, they don't have savings. They don't have barns. They don't have insurance. And God cares for them. And please don't, miss, don't swing the pendulum too far. I, I have a retirement account. But God help me if my security is in it. It is to be found in God. The psalmist says, I will lie down and sleep for you alone, O God. Make me dwell in safety. There is a saving sickness. But there's another kind of greed, isn't there? There's a spending sickness. And this sickness is when money doesn't provide your security, but it provides your identity. It provides your beauty, your your self-worth. Money is used to adorn you. It makes you feel important. There was a commercial that was being run some time ago of a took a picture of a man and they put that same picture of the same man next to a little sedan and a big black truck. And then they got a focus group together and they asked the focus group, which of these pictures demonstrate a a man who looks competent to you or looks like a leader to you? Which of these individuals is more manly? And of course, what did they all chose? The man by the big black truck. Now, it's a mere coincidence that I drive a big black truck. (laughs) We put, though, do we not? We, We want people to approve of us. That's the message. Don't you want to be manly? Don't you want people to think highly of you? Go buy that. Clothes, jewelry, countertops, houses, vacations, cars. 
And money becomes a way to adorn us, to give us our identity. It is, it is a sickness because that is God's job. What makes you beautiful, Christian? What gives you your worth? It is not the clothes on your back or the car you drive far from it. It is the God who made you and saved you and loves you beyond your imagination. It's a sickness. And the tragedy, by the way, is, is that if you have this sickness, you never actually know if people actually like you. They just may like the big black truck, right? Or you, you, you may turn into such a snob that no one likes you. And it actually does the opposite. It makes you ugly, right? M- money's not intended to give you beauty or identity. God is. Look in verse 27. Consider the lilies, the Lord says, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive, today, alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, how much more will he clothe you? God is the one who adorns us. And it's interesting. So you've got the saving sickness and the spending sickness. And, and the people with the saving sickness, they look at the people with the spending sickness and think, wow, look at Those people are self-indulgent. I'm glad I'm not greedy like them. I'm prudent. Right? And then you have the people with the, with the spending sickness. Look at those with the saving sickness. And look, look at those misers, how they hoard their money. I'm glad I'm not like them. I'm helping the economy. Right? But, see, we're both looking to money to do what God can do. This is why the Bible in Colossians 3 verse 5 calls covetousness idolatry. Money becomes our God. Money becomes sacred to us. Now, there may be some here who say, well, you know, I don't save because I don't have money. And I don't spend because I don't have money. And so you think, I'm off the hook. You just check out. Well, not so fast. Remember, this story all started with a man who had no money. Who wanted money, right? It all started with a man saying, how can I get more money? And it's he, he's the one that Jesus is warning against greed. There's a third kind of greed. I think we might call it a worry sickness. It's those who worry about money. This man is worrying about money. And Jesus will go on and teach a parable. But you know, immediately after that parable in verse 22, and he said to his disciples, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. Right? If you worry about money, you're setting yourself, your heart on money just as much as the, as the ones with saving sickness or, or spending sickness. Money is your solution. You think, if I get money, all my problems will go away. Money is going to take care of all my needs. I just need to get it. Of course, that is, once again, God's job. So you could be greedy if you have money. You could be greedy if you don't have money. And I think, if we're honest, many of us suffer from these sicknesses to one degree or another. As I mentioned, God has placed pressure on my feet because I think I have a touch of all three. And I think if you even are willing to admit this morning and say, yeah, I can see that in my life, your natural tendency will be most likely to underestimate how sick you truly are. This is why I think the Lord says, be on your guard. Watch out, he says. Are you on your guard? Seems to me that we're, we're constantly on our guard against all sorts of sin. But what about greed, my fellow Americans? What about covetousness? Does that even enter your mind? I would suggest that you not trust yourself with money. You be suspicious of your heart. Apply yourself with questions, right? Be suspicious. Who goes there? What is that noise? What do you want? 
I think that's how we should treat money. Do I really need that? Do I need more? Can't I give more away? Is God not going to provide? And we feel the pull upon us and we, our hearts say, you know, you need this because it's going to help you here or it's going to make you beautiful here. We ought to attack it immediately. Liar, we ought to say. Liar! It's not true! God is my security. God is my beauty. God cares for me in every way. But I think so often we say to it, you're right, I do need that, don't I? See, money not only hides from us, it lies to us. Greed lies to us is a second danger in which I think the Lord communicates here in verse 15 when He says, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. Why? For one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. This is what money does for us. It says, I give meaning to life. I bring you life. Money comes to us and says, I am the one who gives you life. Have you heard it say that to you? I hear it say it to me all the time. Without me, it says, life will be boring and empty and meaningless and unhappy. I am your life. And so often we nod and think, I need to get it. And we spend so much of our time and energy and thoughts thinking about how can I get this thing. And if I get that thing over there, then I'm really living. If I just hit this measure in, in savings, then I'll be okay. That's what this man's inheritance is saying to him, isn't it? It's saying, if you get me, you will have life. And he is not the only one who's heard that. In 1984, a small investment firm called ESM Government Securities collapsed, causing the shutdown of 69 Southern Ohio savings and loan companies with $4 billion in personal savings. People literally camped outside their banks. I mean, tents, lawn chairs. The media was there. You would watch the people banging on the doors, let us in, give us our money. One man said, I'm so blankety-blankety upset. You work all your life. And then this happens. One woman explained, the longer this goes on, the scareder I get. My stomach just rolls over. They've got my whole life in that bank. Life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions or in the savings in your bank. Life is not about savings. It is not about inheritance. It is not about possessions. And Jesus, by the way, knows what he's talking about. He made life. That's his deal. He knows how life works. He, He knows where life and meaning and depth and purpose and joy are to be found. And it is so often not in the things we dream about and focus on. My brothers and sisters in Christ don't believe the lie. Life doesn't work this way. Money lies to us all the time. I wonder, even if your own personal experience of the things you have, have they given you life? Have they pro- uh, given you what they've promised, right? It seems to me we're never satisfied. We always want more, right? I mean, if I were to ask you, just maybe answer quietly in your own heart, do you have too much? Do you have too much? I, my guess is that most of us will say, yeah, I have too much. Now, let me ask you a follow-up question. Do you want more? I imagine mo- most of us will say, yeah, I want more, I want better, I want newer, I want fancier. You see that lie? Those things don't go together. Right? And, and yet we spend all our time and our energy trying to get more money and thinking more about money and how I can get these things. Listen, you'll be amazed to realize how much fun you could have with time. Right? Instead of just spending all your effort trying to accumulate, just actually enjoy life with the time God has given you. And yet it seems never enough. And yet we're always left empty. Someone once said, greed is a fat demon with a small mouth. Whatever you feed it, it is never enough. 
Or as Solomon put it in Ecclesiastes 5, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money. This man is so consumed with his inheritance, he thinks he's missing out on life. Remember who he's talking to? The Son of God. The Son of God has come into this world. He's offering a relationship with a holy God. He's, he's thinking about money. I mean, can you just understand the tragedy? Of, I mean, how many, how many years did the Son of God actually spend in this world? 30, 40 years? Right? 40, I mean, the world's been around for quite some time, and he only chose 40 years. And this man happened to be living at the very time in which the Son of God was walking upon this earth, and the very time in which he was publicly ministering. He actually happened to live in the very vicinity in which he, the, the Son of God was living, and he actually happened amongst the thousands of people to actually get a conversation with the Son of God. And he says, Jesus, help me get what I deserve. Help me get life. And Jesus says, Okay. I'll help you get life, but not by helping you get your money. By offering you me. Life is not about the abundance of our possessions. It's not not where we find it. You know where we find it? We find it in Christ. He is our life. Jesus says, I've come to give you life and life abundantly. He says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life, he says. He says, if you come to me, if you believe in me, even though you die, yet you shall live. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. I am life, and it's why I'm here. I've come to give you life. Who cares about inheritance and other little problems when our king has come and he offers us himself Jesus did not come to this world to give us things that would supplant His right role in our life. He's come to give us Himself. He's come to give us life. He's come to be our life. That's why you cannot serve God in money, as we considered earlier in our service. You see, greed not only hides to you, it it, it whispers its lies to you. And while it does, it's trying to kill you. Consider thirdly and lastly this morning that greed destroys Greed destroys. Verse 16, Jesus begins a parable. The Bible says, And he told him a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentiful. You notice this man was rich before he had this plentiful harvest. He was clearly a prosperous businessman. His business obtains even more wealth. Is that bad? Is that sinful? No, of course not. It's not bad to get a promotion. It's not bad to get a pay raise. It's not bad to be productive. I think we all want businesses to flourish. We all want to use our work in order to bless people and provide for our own means. And God, I think, uniquely kept some people in making money. Some people are really good at making money. And I trust that is a gift from the Lord. I don't think that's wrong. I don't think this man is a fool because he's rich. But his riches do present a dilemma to him, as we see in verse 17. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. Right? So his bills are paid off, the mortgage is taken care of, and he has all this extra. And he says, well, what, what, what should I do with the rest? His solution is found in verse 18. He said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and all my goods. You see, he's, he's an American. Right? I mean, we, didn't we just do that? that was, that's called the 90s. Right? Years of plenty... Years of lots of grain, and what do we go? We go out and build bigger barns and bigger houses, even though we, we couldn't afford them. Right? By the way, our homes keep getting bigger. I don't know if you realize this. It may be hard for some of you to believe. But in 1950, the average size of the American home was 1,000 square feet. That's like the size of our closets. Right? 
20 years later, it was 1,500 square feet. 20 years after that, 1990, the average American home was 2,000 square feet. In 2010, 20 years later, it was 2,600 square feet. In 60 years, our houses have gone to 1,000 square feet to 2,600 square feet. And the family size, by the way, has dropped by 25%. And still, our stuff does not fit. Right? And yet, we still think we need more. Right? Can you relate to that? I- I, that's, in, that, I got, I, that's my life. I understand that. Right? Bigger barns. No, but is that a sin? Is it a sin to build bigger barns? I don't think so. Not necessarily. But notice his goal. Verse 19. I think this is where we get to the crux of the matter. I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. You see? He's an American. Right? All my financial needs are met. I think I will retire and relax. Is that not what we are after? I made lots of money. I think I'll take it easy. I'm going to eat, relax, and drink, and be merry. Right? Eat, drink, relax, and be merry. You could almost put that in every commercial on television, couldn't you? And then you just add maybe the, the typical American tagline, because you deserve it. Right? The good life. You can relate to that, can't you? Spend my golden years in the pursuit of idle pleasure? Well, this is exactly what Jesus warned about. In fact, if you do that, I say with great kindness and love in my heart, you are a fool. Verse 20. But God said to him, Fool! That would have startled everyone. The modern equivalent would be stupid idiot. Right? Everyone would say, Did he just say that? God says, fool. Why? This night your soul is required of you and the things which you have prepared. Whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Now, he didn't look like a fool, did he? Everyone who lived next to this man, his neighbors, his, his friends, they would never have thought he were a fool. After all, he's rich, his business grew, he's never caught off guard, he always wise investments, always knows what's to do and when to plant and when to harvest, right? To many people, this is the, the pinnacle of wisdom. And yet God has a totally different perspective as he looks upon him and calls him a fool, raising the question, why? I believe there are many answers Perhaps he was a fool because he thinks he has, according to verse 19, many years left when he has but just a few hours. Perhaps he's a fool because he thinks his surplus means security, as we considered already. But perhaps most importantly, he's a fool because in his abundance he thinks nothing of God. And yet now he would give an accounting to God. All he thinks about is himself. I don't know if you could pull it out from this parable how, how self-indulgent this man is and self-absorbed he is. You listen to what he says. He says, I, 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 me, me, my, my, my fruit, my barns, my goods, my soul. He even has an inner dialogue with himself. He's talking to himself about himself, answering himself questions, asking himself questions, and then answering himself. There are 54 words in this parable. 18 of them are in the first person. I, me, and I. He worships the Trinity, right? I, me, and I. That's who he loves. No thought of others. No thought of stewardship. No thought of God. And I tell you, the danger of of money is it will lure you from God if you let it. It will pull you from treasuring God. Not always. Plenty of incredibly godly rich men in the Bible 
Think Abraham. Think Job. But for how many, this man, and I trust many others, money pulls us away from God. It pulls us into self-focus, and the treasure no longer is God. The treasure becomes ease and leisure and possessions and things. Remember when we were considering Jesus' teaching on prayer from earlier in Luke, and, and we, we referred to that prayer in the Proverbs where the proverb uh, writer says, Please, God, don't make me poor lest I steal and dishonor you, but don't make me rich lest I say, Who is God? It's a tendency to pull us away. If God was his treasure, this man would have had a dialogue. It would have gone like this. God, this all is all yours. Thank you for it. You made my fields prosper. Now show me how I could use my wealth in such a way that proves you are my treasure and not my riches. In fact, he might even say, I have enough. I don't need better food. I don't need better drink. In fact, I want to make others marry. I want to help I make others marry with the gospel. How can I use this? to further your fame and to further your kingdom. You see, so often money just elevates this world. It elevates what we can get out of this world. It blinds us to God. It makes us fools because we think, well, I'll spend this on myself, right? Right? When you spend things on yourself, it can't go with you. You know that? You, you can't take it with you. And by the way, Christian, you're going to live forever. And forever is a really long time. And you put 80 years next to forever, and 80 years doesn't seem very long. And yet, how often do we we're just focus on these 80 years? And I'll tell you, it's foolish. It's foolish. Let's say you went out this afternoon and you won the lottery. Right? Let's say you won $10 million. Let's say you got $10 million. And you took that $10 million and you went out and bought, spent it all on cowboy boots and yo-yos. Right? Right? You know what the rest of us would think? You know, we would love you, but we would think you're a fool, right? Why? Well, put some aside, we might say. Save for the future, we might say. Your yo-yos will not last, we will say. But is that not what Jesus is saying? Your savings will not last your 401ks and IRAs and your homes and your big black trucks will not last. You have it here for just a little while, but one day God will call you home. He might ask, what did you do with what I gave you? He might ask you, how did you spend the resources in which I lent you? Money blinds us. It acts as if it's permanent, but it's not. And one day, uh, I think you and I will see this with thundering clarity. We're blinded by money to eternity and to God. We're blind to our debt of sin. We're blind to it all. That's why God calls him a fool. In fact, he's not only a fool, if I can use this in the biblical sense, he is a damned fool. Right? He's a fool who loses his soul. Jesus says, today your soul is required. From you. Now, we don't catch the nuance here, but in the Greek, the required is a banker's term. It's a term that a banker has used to call in a loan. The loan is now due. The lender comes to see what, to collect what is owed him. God is saying to him, I gave you this life as a loan and now I demand it back. Do you think of your life that way? This is a loan from God. You know, I think so often we think this is my life. No one's going to tell me how to run my life. I'm going to do what I want. It's my money. No one's going to tell me how to spend my money. And God says, your life? Are you so sure about that? I thought it was on loan. And what we say before we stand God, before God? When he says, what do you do with your life? 
Do you want to say to God, I bought yo-yos? Right? Or do you want to say, God, I, I took care of my family, certainly, but man, I dreamt about your kingdom. I dreamt about your glory and what I could be do, but you could do through me for it. The Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 9, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. I plead with you and with myself this morning, do not let worldly worth, worldly wealth entrap you, bring you to ruin. Live in the light of the day in which you'll stand before God. What, what is it, my friends, my brothers and sisters in Christ, do you do with your money? Do you show yourself and others that God is your treasure with your money? This man is, God keeps blessing him and he keeps thinking, okay, bigger, bigger barns. You know, I, I'm just going to do things for me. Be wary of that heart. And, and by the way, us as a church, I think there's a corporate application. Hamilton Baptist Church, be wary of, of building bigger barns for our church. Be wary of taking the resources in which God gives us as a church and, and just funneling them back upon ourselves. When there is a world deep in poverty, both spiritually and physically, and God calls His church to be a light of the world and salt to this earth. I praise the Lord that we give over 20% of our budget to the nations and to our neighbors to help the poor and spread the gospel. I praise the Lord that over Easter you gave $13,000 to plant churches in North America. I thank you in May when we had our missions conference, you gave almost $5,000 to our church planner, Paula Dean, in Ghana, and yet... Hamilton Baptist Church, we can grow in this. Beware of thinking we just want to spend it upon ourselves. Use money to show you treasure God. You could do that. In fact, there's plenty of people, even in the Gospel of Luke, who do that. Turn quickly over to Luke chapter 1. Let me show you a man who used his money to show his treasure was for God. Luke chapter 1, verse 3. Luke tells us how it is he got to the point where he's writing this account of Jesus. It says, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Theophilus, we know nothing about him other than he was a government um, ruler, hence the title, most excellent. Most commentators believe that Theophilus used his wealth to fund Luke's many-year quest in writing this gospel, and not only the gospel of Luke, but also the book of Acts. He uses money to treasure God. Turn over to Luke chapter 7. Let me show you another wealthy man. Find him in verse 3. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews asking him to come and to heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly saying, He is worthy for you to have this done for him, for he loves our nation and he is the one who built our synagogue. There's a man who's using his wealth to build a house of worship. Turn to Luke chapter 8. The Bible says in verse 2, And also some women who have been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Shusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. Look to Luke chapter 10 and verse 28. Now eight days after these things, he took with him Peter, excuse me, Luke 10 verse 38, now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. 
hospitality, feeding Jesus, caring for him. Look lastly in Luke chapter 19. You encounter a a man who has great wealth named Zacchaeus in verse 8 of Luke 19. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Or if you will, look to what Jesus encouraged us to do. In Luke 12 and verse 33, a passage we will consider at depth in the coming months when we return to our study of Luke's Gospel. But let this be a challenge to you and to me. Sell your possessions, he says, and give to the needy. Why? Provide yourself with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. May we be, as Christ has encouraged us to be in verse 21 of this passage, rich towards God. See, Jesus is trying to save us. He's trying to save us from this, our life being swallowed by trinkets that are just simply going to fill a landfill. Be rich towards God. Strategize, dream, fantasize, budget how you can use what God has given you for the good of others to build His kingdom. For life is not about the abundance of possessions. It's found in being rich towards God and treasuring God and valuing God. May Christ warn us well of the pull and danger of greed, this money sickness. But He not only warns us of it, as we say to conclude our time this morning, I think He helps us overcome it. Right? I mean, how do we get, if we, if we admit we have this in our heart, how do we get past it? You know, the Bible, I think I shared this verse with you a couple weeks ago, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and verse 9. It says that though He, referring to Jesus, was rich, Yet for our sakes he became poor, so that through his poverty he might make us rich. And Jesus comes to help us because we're, we're, the Bible says, in debt. Sin is called uh, at places a debt. We even sang a song about our debt being forgiven. We sometimes pray the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debts. Every sin in which we commit against God is like an accrual of debt against Him. Could you imagine if you got a debt statement from God every month? It goes there in the mailbox and you pull it out like a credit card and... There is every sin you committed this last month. And you see all your sinful thoughts and you think, oh boy, you heard that. And then you see your sinful words and sinful deeds and you're reviewing that. And you're starting to think, oh man, this, there's a lot going on here. Right? And, and then all the things that you were supposed to do that you, you didn't do, that you uh, weren't doing what God had called you, sins of omission and sins of commission, sins of thought, word, deed, motives. Can you imagine getting something like that every month? And the bottom of it, total due, the wrath of God. Total due, damnation. And then another one comes next month. And another one comes next month. And, and then they start coming in different colors, right? It's, you get, they start coming in green and yellow. And maybe you even get them pink. You know, past due, accrued interest, penalty. Right? This is getting stressful. And one day you get one and you open it up and you see all your sin there. And you get down to the bottom. And someone's written a note. It says, paid in full. 
loved Jesus. He's paid it all. He who was rich sold everything he had that he might make you rich. Gave up his glory, gave up his comfort, gave up his relationship with the Father, gave up his power. He, he came and gave it up to pay our debt on the cross of Christ. And when you receive that payment, when you receive that gift of Jesus, I tell you, Christian, based on the authority of God's word, you will be rich, unimaginably wealthy. And if your heart tells you, I need to run after money, and I need to worry about money, and I can't give it away, and I can't live without it, and I resent those who have more of it, then, then no matter how much money you have, you will always be poor. You will always be a captive. You will always be sick. But when you realize how much God loves you, and how much He gave up for you, no matter what you have, no matter how little you might have, I tell you, you are rich. Eternally rich. You know, the Bible says in Deuteronomy 6 that it refers to the people of God as God's treasured possessions. Peter will use that same phrase in 1 Peter chapter 2. Treasured possession. You ever have to give a gift to someone who, who, who might be wealthy, right, who has a lot of things, and you think, well, what, what, what can I give them? Right, what, can I, right, what, what can I give a billionaire who when he receives it, he thinks, oh, I've always wanted this. Right? This is a treasure. God owns everything. I mean, literally, it is all His. And the Bible says, you are His treasure. And He says, I'll give it up all. I will lay it all aside that I might come get you. And I'll tell you, to the degree in which you experience that grace is the degree in which you will be rich, the degree in which you will be healthy, the degree in which you will be free. And you know what money becomes for you then? It becomes money. It's no longer security. It's no longer beauty. It's just money. And you look at the world and you smile and, and, and you look at your money and say, I don't need you. <laughs> I don't need you. I have God. I don't need this. I don't need that. I don't need that thing over there. I don't need the stock market to hit here. I don't need to get to this much of my RA. I'm rich. Who can I bless? Who can I help? Who can I show that God is worthy of everything? I wonder, are you, are you rich this morning, Christian? Are you free? Is money just money to you? Perhaps you're here this morning, you're not a Christian. You might be thinking, are, are, are the plates coming back out? Is He after our money? Does God want your money? God doesn't want your money. God wants your heart. He wants to free you. God wants to make you rich right now. He sent His Son who gave up everything to go on a cross and to pay all of your debt. The Bible says in Colossians 2 that He took the record of your debt and nailed it to the cross. The Lord of heaven and earth grabbed all your sin in His hand, all your debt, and they put a nail through it as they pinned Him to a rugged beam on Calvary's hill that He might bear the wrath of God and pay your debt in full. I tell you, it is the epitome of foolishness to say, no, thank you, I'll pay for it myself. He rose from the grave victoriously, bodily, physically, appeared to over 500 people and said, If you will bow your knee to me as your king, I will forgive your sin, I will give you mercy, I will free you, and I will make you now and forever unimaginably wealthy in me. Why would you resist him?
Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. And once again, I ask for forgiveness in my own heart when I take the, the gracious things in which you have given me and, and elevate them to the point where they compete for my heart. Oh God, we want you to have all of our heart. And so to the degree in which all of us in some sense struggle with these issues, may we, may we not leave here thinking, I'm going to try harder. May we, may we start with just staring at the cross, considering the poverty of Christ. It may change us. Help us. We need help. We pray for our friend here this morning. That keeps you at arm length. Will you help them with great grace and mercy to show them the foolishness of turning their back upon Jesus? Will you help them to bow their knee to the King who has come to save? We pray in Christ's name. Amen.